Welcome to Series 4 of My Life in Design, brought to you by the DBA and design-focused PR agency, Red Setter. I'm Claire Blythe, co-founder of Red Setter. In this series, I'll be speaking to more people who are shaping the world of design, finding out how they discovered that design was a thing you could base a career around and how they got to where they are today. This week, I'm here with Rowena Carr-Lewis and Margaret Nolan from the drinks branding design specialist, Denomination. Denomination is around 20 years old and has studios all around the world from Sydney, London, San Francisco. They work with brands such as Penfolds, Smeaton's Gin, Hardee's, Coburn's, 19 Crimes, Woodflass, the list goes on. Ro Margaret, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So lovely to be here, Claire. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I really want to find out all about basically how you got started and how you ended up where you are now running one of the best drinks branding agencies in the world. How did you first realise design existed as a career that you could actually make money from and base a career around? Well, when I was at school, I had no careers counselling at all because I was at school a very long time ago. <laughs> sounds really <laughs> terrifying. And really, the whole career path was if you got the marks, you went and did law or you went and did medicine or you went and did something, you know, at university. And design wasn't necessarily something I thought about. I always loved making things and creating things. And I was just very lucky. I had an older sister who was much older than me. She's 13 years older than me and hugely creative. Went to art school when she left school and then worked as a, a set designer and an artist and 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 in, it just she was just amazingly creative and she said to me and I was just so lucky I had her she said what are you doing go and do a design course and she was actually the one who sort of opened my eyes to the fact that you could actually go and do these things because otherwise there was no way of finding out about it and it was very difficult to to know that design even existed. And the design courses in, when, when I was had left school, they're very limited places. It was very competitive. Um, they're very hard to get into because there was only, say, 25 people in each year, let alone in each course. And so it was incredibly hard to, to, to get in if you weren't, you know, super fabulous at drawing and airbrushing and all these kind of technical skills that I was terrible at. So when I applied to go to design school, I actually didn't get in. <laughs> I was really, I was really devastated. I didn't get in, and you know, it, it was such a um, eye opener because that for me went, oh, this is actually really hard to do. And I think that as well, I think people, um, and you might have mentioned before, Claire, but people think that design isn't a real job, and they think that it's kind of just mucking around with paintbrushes and drawing, and you know. But it's 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 hard. It's a really difficult profession. It, it's it's taxing and it's very rewarding. But it, it's it's difficult. You know, you, it's it's hard to be a good designer. And and I think that that is something that people don't understand. Just how much brain power and intelligence and thought goes into actually being a good designer. Yeah, I think you're right. So, what happened when you got your first knockback? Did you get back to the same place? Luckily, someone dropped out and and I was the next person in. So they dropped out after about three weeks and, and I got into the design course. And it was it was the most humiliating year I spent um, because they had this system of putting up everyone's marks in the corridor of the, the design school so everybody could see what your marks were and one of my best friends at college she was always on the top of the list <laughs> and I was like on the bottom of the list <laughs> I was like oh my god because first year was all of these very technical things and you know we learned in those days and this is a long time ago we had to learn you know perspective drawing we had to learn airbrushing we had to learn all these technical things like life drawing and drawing and and and, I, and I'm terrible at drawing like I, I can't draw for for the life of me, you know what I mean? I think that people, again, it's a misconception that you've got to be a fantastic illustrator and drawer to be. Oh, all of the people who were really, really, really good in year one, they were the people who were the, who would have gone to become the illustrators and things of the world. But they were all doing design. But they, you know, they were incredibly good at what they did. And in second year, because my course was only two years, Routing Tech, 
that's when it got into type and design and all that kind of stuff and conceptual stuff. And and I loved that, you know. And so my luckily the sort of fortunes turned around a bit because otherwise I wouldn't have got through the course. But um, it was just more discovering design in second year. Like first year was actually a great foundation to, to learning about things like perspective and and hand rendering type all that kind of stuff yeah. it's absolutely fantastic really but um second year was yeah where I actually sort of thought phew I can do this so that's where you started developing working on like the core ideas and the design thinking rather than just that in the process mm. of how it looks yeah yeah interesting so how about you Ro what when did you discover design as a whole as an industry I was about 25 and I'd just come back from Australia having lived in uh, London and Toronto and I'd I'd worked in publishing and marketing comms and then in advertising. And when I got back to Australia, I, I wanted to sort of reset and find another industry that I felt I wanted to be closer to the creatives. And I felt that when I was in advertising, that was so departmentalised that if you were in client service, you sat, you know, on a different floor in a different section and you really had very little interaction with the creatives. And that's that's not something that I enjoyed. You know, I, I loved observing and being close to the creative process, not actually being a designer myself, but but really appreciating and, and being able to be connected to that to that process. So a friend of mine suggested design and I was like what's that <laughs> and uh and so that's that's really the the first time that I'd even heard of design as an industry and then of course you know got researching into the industry and worked out that you know that is something that that completely appealed to me you know I, I'd done well in art at school and and I'd gone into a communications path and done a, a comms degree but I I always loved beautifully designed things so it, it felt like a really easy as soon as I read about it I was like oh no this is the industry for me and by the end of day one of my first job I was like I'm done <laughs> I don't need to go searching for any more that's really good that's so it's interesting that you were 25 when you discovered this like I always still wonder now how so you come from the account side of things as in account management account direction that sort of path rather than the design path how people even know I'm sure people just don't know it's a thing at school I'm sure it must be jobs that everyone accidentally ends up in because they do communications and then can find out about it later on yeah I think I hope that um, these days there's more of a focus on on design and and the the benefits of design especially through you know fashion and magazines different type and so forth so I would hope that that's not as much of an issue, but certainly um, back then, I I didn't I I really didn't didn't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's getting less of an issue, but it's still still a massive issue worldwide. I think it's uh, hopefully listening to people like you guys talking about it will kind of chip away at solving that. But we'll see. But um, so Margaret, how, can we talk about so when you were at art school? How did you find art school? Did you did you enjoy the process? And how did you basically move from there to getting your first role? Well, I had a great time at art school. The only reason being is I felt like I met a whole lot of people for the first time in my life that I had something really in common with. You know, I mean, I went to a very sort of strict Catholic convent school where I was not the weirdo outsider, but really when you're creative and you go to a conservative school it's you're always a little bit like you know people think you're the zany sort of person and I loved being around other people who were creative it was just it was fantastic I had so much fun I I would have loved it to have been longer the thing that I really loved about it was how much I learned in such a quick amount of time because we we packed this course in it used to be a four-year course and they government funding and everything they cut the course down to two years, but they still had the four-year curriculum into two years. Right. So you had to sign an agreement. You could do 30 hours of extra stuff a week outside your nine-to-five college course. I worked harder at it than anything. Like I was just, I was gobsmacked by how, you know, it was it was really hard work. But um, I think the thing that was fantastic about it was um, being mentored 
and taught by people who were just really fantastic. Like there was a, a, an amazing typographer. There was there was a fabulous guy who was an animator who was amazing. And it was just really wonderful to to learn from people. And and I think that that's the the really key thing is if if you can find somewhere where you can learn from people, you'll go a really long way. It's it's just it's just being able to tap into all of those fantastic sort of experiences that other people have and they can show you things and they can, you know, open up this world to you that is is so great. It was really great. I loved when I was at college. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Whereabouts do you where were you, were you study? Whereabouts in Australia? In Sydney, yeah. Yeah. It was it was um and and in those days, I mean, it literally was. Now there are so many university courses that you can go and do for design. In those days, design was still considered to be almost like a trade, and and the polytechnics or the the, the, the technical colleges were set up to have design alongside things like the bricklayers and the typesetters and everyone else. So we literally were at college with a whole lot of guys who were all learning how to be mechanics and we'd go down to the canteen at lunchtime, all these little funny designers dressed in 1980s silly haircuts and funny clothes and be surrounded by guys in overalls who would shout at us and chuck chips at us and it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it was really, it was, it was not a sort of like wholesome sort of total environment to, to be a WAPO designer in, that's for sure. <laughs> It's quite a world away from like Central St. Martins or something yeah. nowadays. That's that. Yeah. I mean, that would just be, it would, you know, like my, my children have both gone to art school and there's, they went to a, a campus where it was a complete and total art campus where everyone was artists on the campus. And look, that would have been a dream, but that wasn't like that in my, in my day that, at all. I don't know, maybe there are upsides to that. Maybe that's sort of realism around. I quite like <laughs> I totally agree. It's like getting to know the real world. <laughs> I quite like the old-fashioned description of brand design as that kind of commercial art. Mm. So you see a realism of what it actually is, and it's, I think both are really important. Mm. So how did you move from there into your first role? Was that Did you move over to the UK at that point to... No. Um, what I did is uh, there was a design company in Sydney called Lundia and it was very small and they were doing amazing work. There was a designer called Tony Lunn who was incredible and I just loved his work and I, I really, really wanted to work for him. So I wrote them as you did in those days. You wrote a letter and you sent, made up a sort of creative-looking CV and you sent it in. And he wrote back to me and said, we don't have anything now, but if you write back to me again in four months, then we might have something for you. So I did all of these jobs, like worked at 24-hour pancake cafes and all that kind of stuff. And and then I just kept in touch with them and wrote and kept writing, and, and then they gave me a job. And it was amazing because Tony Lunn was the first designer in the world to, we were, he was designing Qantas at the time, and he was the first designer in the world to actually use the entire body of the aeroplane for the tail graphics. Before then, all the airline identities stopped at the body of the aeroplane and Tony wrapped the, the what you see now, basically. He pioneered that. It was the most incredible, he was the most incredible designer. I mean, he, he, the way he thought about things, like he just did things so differently. We were in a tiny studio of 10 people and we rolled out an entire identity for a, a major airline. Now, that would never happen right. now. Never would no, ever, no. ever happen now. They wouldn't give a tiny studio of 10 people a major airline, but we did yeah, it and it was conscious and it was incredible. Wow, that's a pretty good place to start. So how did you go... From there to is it Lewis Mobley was your first role after that? My no, my first role is um, I then um, left Lambda. I said to Tony, I want to go and work overseas, and he thought I was an idiot. He goes, "What do you want to go?" I said, "I said I want to go to London." He goes, "What do you want to go there for?" <laughs> and I went, "Well, I do. I want to go to London." 
And I got a job um, doing identity work at um, Lloyd Northover, um, oh, okay. which was in those days in um, the back of Covent Garden. So it was in the most fantastic warehouse. Yeah. It was in the most fabulous part of London. They had the whole warehouse. It was an amazing business. Jim and John were really very inspirational people in the way that they ran their business. They're every week. They had an in-house cook who was amazing. Her name was Harriet and I can still remember her name. They had a whole kitchen set up. And with all of their clients and all of and basically all their meetings, they would have it over food and they would have these incredible lunches. And they would also have lunch with every single person in the business individually. Um, so I was this little baby junior basically, and I, I went and had lunch with John and Jim once a month. I would go upstairs and have lunch. And it was really inspirational for me that they could even be bothered to do that. Like I'm just the junior in the company. Why would they want to do that? And but they did, and it was amazing. And they, they had a really fantastic business. They did huge, again, huge identities like British Airways Authority and Courtholds. And I mean, this was sort of in the heyday, early, early 80s of design and definitely before the computer. So everything was still done by hand. And it was fabulous. It was fabulous learning and lots and lots of really sort of um, diverse personalities, lots of boys from the north there. <laughs> and there was always an argument about the music that was played in the studio. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, like it was just, it was a really great, it was a really, really great learning environment for me and I, I loved it. It was, it was fabulous and I knew that I really wanted to work in London and that's what I wanted to do. So um, I sort of found my niche. It was really great. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. That's a, so did you, Ro, did you have a similar experience when you got your first job? Was it at Landor, your first? Yeah, it was. Yeah, when I found out about design, I sort of targeted two agencies in Sydney and Landor was one of them. They were the first ones that responded. So um, I went for an interview there and, and uh, yeah, I had three fantastic years at, at Landor. They really, you know, it was sort of fantastic training in, in design um, and on the second day that I was there, they decided that I would work on the Penfolds account, which is at that stage was a dream account to work on. And for whatever reason, they decided that I'd be a good fit for for that brand. And so that was really my my introduction to drinks um, packaging design was was working on Penfolds. So yeah, I had I had three awesome years at Landor. I did a sort of secondment to the London office, which was really fun, and uh and yeah, learned lots. I learned lots about what I loved and what I didn't love, and I. I definitely found that I really liked sort of corporate identity work and I liked environmental. I really didn't like sort of FMCG packaging for me, but I loved drinks brownie. It's just what I absolutely loved. And so it was just fortuitous that I I got given this this introduction to to drinks branding through Penfolds and, and obviously that expanded from there, but that was you know, that's remained with me since. In fact, that client has remained with me since, which is pretty exciting. That's a really cool thing to, yeah, carry with you throughout your career. Yeah, um, yeah. Did you have many specialist agencies at that time? I was thinking, like, would you have imagined at that time you could base a whole global business basically around just drinks? No, in, in, that, in those days, and I think pretty much today really the industry used to specialize in a discipline so there was corporate identity agencies or environmental pack and so you really found your niche in whatever kind of suited your skill set or or interest Um, but but you didn't often cross like once you got into say environmental you stayed within environmental agencies so when we did our business we we wanted to to flip that on its head because actually Margaret and I loved doing brand identities and um, extrapolation of those identities. We actually enjoyed some environmental stuff, but we also love branding and, and packaging. So, so we decided to do all disciplines but only through a drinks lens. So it was, it, it, when we set it up 21 years ago, it was a quite a different approach to how other agencies were doing things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a really clever approach. It's um, 
So how did you how did you first meet? Was it? I know there's a bit where you um, moved over to Lewis Moverly, but was it something around there where you first met? Well, Margaret had been working at Lewis Moverly. That's a that's a whole story that you you should probably tell. <laughs> but um, Margaret and I first met. Well, I'll tell you how I first met Margaret. I went to a seminar um, that Margaret was speaking at. So I was still working at Landor and I had heard about this designer that everyone was talking about that had recently come back from, I don't know, seven or eight years in London working for Lewis Mobley and she had um, an incredible reputation for being an incredible designer. So I went along to this lecture and saw her speak and saw her work, which was just extraordinary. And I was like, my God, she is going to give us a hiding, (laughs) you know, because her work was just so good. Um, And I think that view was shared by pretty much everyone at Landor as well. And so when I I was looking to leave Landor and sort of get um, some more experience in another um, agency, Margaret had had set up um, Kirby and Nolan, her business, with another business partner. So um, I just said to the recruiter, there are only two agencies that I go to, found and removed the other one, and and Kirby and Nolan. So I went for an interview there. And so Margaret was my boss. So she, Ah, yeah. So it's a bit of a scary thought, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, how the table (laughs) Not at all. She's still my boss, let me assure you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so so I then spent uh, three years at Kirby Nolan working with Margaret and then we just you know from day one it was pretty obvious that you know it was it was a really great match between her skills and my skills and and we just really enjoyed each other's company we had the same values we wanted to do the same stuff so you know it was uh it was you know just one of those you know fortuitous meetings yeah like, Margaret, you've got to tell me a little bit about Lewis Mobley and then we can talk about <laughs> why you went on set at Tim. Well, it was amazing. After I worked at um, Lord Northover, um, um, my husband, my, my now husband, I wasn't married then, came, I was working at Lord Northover and he came over to see me. There was a little bit of romance involved in this. And um, he, I waved him off back home on the air bus at Notting Hill at 5 o'clock in the morning and I actually thought this is the worst moment of my life. I can't. I can't leave, be in this country for any longer. I've been away for nearly two years. I have to go home. (laughs) And this is three, three internet. I went that day and rang up a travel agent and booked my flight home. I thought, that's it, I've had enough. I've just got to go home. So I went home for a year and um, worked for another agency in Sydney. And then Ronnie and I got married the end of that year and we left the next day and came back to London, which was fantastic. Oh, wow, Okay. When I came back, I, I really, really wanted to work for um, a really fantastic packaging design company because I just loved packaging after some little job that I'd done and had some experience and I really loved packaging. And Lewis Mobley um, was definitely very high on the radar. And um, and luckily for me, I a long time ago at Lloyd Northover, I'd done this little job. It was only a a little job for ASDA matches and um, it got into creative review and it won a, an award and that kind of stuff. And Mary used to keep folders of things that she noticed of oh. people. So when I came in, she had my little project in the folder. And so luckily for me, that was a plus. But also the biggest plus was is that my background mostly until that date was print and so I had a lot of type experience and she was really drawn to someone who was type-based because where Mary's strength really is an amazing um, judge of um, design ability but also she didn't like employing people that came from other packaging agencies because she felt that they had learned bad habits <laughs> so she would employ someone who's a fashion designer or someone who's an interior designer because she wanted to get different ideas about packaging that wasn't 
the norm. And and actually, I think that's why Ms. Mobley was so successful because she had people that thought about it in a different way and approached it in a different way and didn't have that standard sort of like, I've been a packaging designer and this is how you do things. And so um, I was just really lucky. And, and of course, you know, started at Ms. Mobley and literally was, you know, the unenviable position once again of being like what I was like back in college the worst person in a in a company full of incredible people. I mean, but the thing that is great about that is how much you learn and the thing that is not great about that is that you really know that you are really not. How hungry it is. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and, and, and it was amazing and Mary was an amazing person to work um, for, um, incredibly demanding. Uh, amazingly intelligent and I learned so much it was like my, my father said to me it's your university course you know and I thought you know it is my university course because she taught me about strategy both she and Robert taught me about how to think about things in a really strategic you know answering the brief making something memorable yeah. um, she um, gave me this advice once that you know, you can do all your design work. And this is still in the time where everything, there's a lot of stuff that was really manual. We know Macs were only just starting to come in and everything was still very manual, lots of stuff on layout pads. You know, go away, look at it in the morning and chuck a whole lot of stuff out. And she was the designer who taught me to actually get rid, chuck, chuck stuff out, like start again. And not very many designers ever do that because they go, oh, well, I've done this now. And they think, oh, okay, I'm happy with this. I've done it. But actually, if you chuck it out, you go on to do much better stuff. And that was the best advice she ever gave me. And I know that it's it's very frustrating sometimes, and especially in the past when I go, what happened to that one? What happened to that one? And I go, I've chucked it. I can't stand it. <laughs> but nevertheless. So just keeping that cool idea of building on the best bit, is that what you mean? It's, it's, she taught me to keep going. And, and and that was the biggest lesson that I learned from there was yeah. keep going, you know, and, and the, the best designs usually are the ones that, that happen towards the end because you've relaxed, you're kind of in the zone, you've pumped out a whole lot of ideas, you've got some under your belt anyway, but what else can we do? And that's when the good stuff happens and that's the thing that is very hard to teach people because they get into their comfort zone and they go, well, I've done these and I'm happy with these and then they just think, oh, I'm just going to stop. And I, I want to go keep going, keep going, you know. So that was really great about Mary. It was she was amazing. I'm always astounded still about every project I see of, of your work about how different it is and how right it feels and how so that must just come from that basically of obviously time, but anyway. But getting to that point where you keep going until it's everything looks so different and so beautiful and creative. It's yeah, obviously started there. And she does, Claire, honestly, till like three minutes before the presentation. She's like, I've just got one more. <laughs> and you know what? Em's right. Like on, nine times out of ten, that last one will be the winner. It's like she she creates it. And I look at the screen. I'm like, oh, my God, that is just brilliant. And it, I think it's that process of having to get out all of the other ideas, then being able to relax and then finally doing stuff that is just really just incredibly creative. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. Yeah, it works really, really well. So what from there? What, you were at Lewis Mabley for how many years were you there for? About nearly seven years, I think. It, it was the most fantastic learning experience and also learning about Max as well. Like I, I bought some Mac experience back from Sydney with me. But when I started at Lewis Mobley, we had no Macs. By the time I left, we all had Macs. You know, like it was a revolution in that time. Yeah. And I think we're going through the same thing now with AI. Like it's, it's the same kind of revolution. It, it, it's going to make life so much easier for just generating quick ideas as to what about this, what about this, what about this, you know. In the days before Max, you had to hand cut every single letter of lines of type to, to then photocopy them and stick them all together and put them on these visuals. And everything was so labor intensive. It was just incredible. So you didn't really want to have to play around much because it meant so much more work of recutting all the type out and all that kind of thing. You know, it was just so labor intensive. Yeah. So when the Max came in, it was fabulous. Yeah. And, and I think the real thing with, with, 
um, working in London um, in those days, and that was between 1988 and 1995. Yeah, was the it was the heyday of really amazing design in London. I think as far as packaging design and stuff, it was when people like Boots and Marks and Spencers were spending a lot of money, Sainsbury's spending a lot of money on their own brands. There was, you know, the most beautiful packs coming out. Like you could just walk through the supermarkets and just go, oh, my God, this is all just incredible. And there was just this sort of, you know, legendary range of design businesses doing incredible stuff, you know, the, the heyday of the partners and Trick and Web and, like, you know, and things like illustration and, and you know, like photography and there was all people like Nick Knight and, you know, like amazing sort of creativity going on in London that was so fabulous and also all the advertising, you know, the height of Bartle Bogle Hegarty and just such really fantastic creativity. Yeah, I agree. And, and um, so it was a really inspirational time to, to be in London, you know, like it was so amazing. You know, and and I'm so glad I was there at that time because I just feel as though it was like the sort of I call it sort of almost like the golden age. You know, I, it really was. It was just fantastic. Yeah, lots and lots of talent around. It's um, yeah, I'm still I'm working on getting married to come on the podcast. So hopefully she will do it at some point. But um, we will see. But um, so tell me about so you you met at Kirby and Nolan. Why did you decide to set up your own agency? Why didn't you want to go and work for someone else? For me. When I was in Sydney, when I came back to Sydney, I actually found it incredibly hard to get a job. <laughs> so you want to get to go back down to the bottom of the ladder because for some reason the, the weird thing was is that a, a lot of people said to me, it's all very well to have this fancy stuff in your portfolio but clients here won't do work like that. And I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding. Come on, you know, like give it a go. And and then when I was seeing what people were doing, I'm thinking, oh my god, you know, like, and and the thing that was also I found rather shocking at the time, and this is what I gave a lecture on, or was in part of my lecture when I, the one that wrote mentioned, was I was just so horrified by how many like hundred percent knockoffs there were in Australia. Like you know, someone had seen a brand in the UK and then they'd come back to Australia and they'd gone, oh, we're just going to copy it, and they would just copy it. And they think, oh, no one's going to know because it's over in the UK. And clients would copy it. You know, clients would go, well, you just want it like this. And and people would do it. Um, and I was just horrified because I, I named it at least 10 brands and then got the original and got the copy and got the original and got the copy. And now there is no way that you could do that because you get sued because everyone would see it on the internet and all that kind of stuff. But in those days, it was rife. And, and I think the thing that was interesting is the agencies that I went to they were sort of all just going, oh, no, this is not the sort of work that our clients want or would even go for or they would even think that, you know, that it wasn't even something that was commercially viable. So it's a bit it's a bit depressing really. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Back down to the bottom of the class again. <laughs> Definitely. So what do you do? Obviously you have cracked that completely. But, yeah, if you're thinking, God, I'm just I'm in the wrong place and no one's going to buy my work. Well, I got a couple of jobs. I did get a job and I stayed at, and stayed at them for, you know, like I, I got a job at a, at a big branding agency and um, I stayed there for about 18 months and then I just thought, no, this is just not for me. I don't want to do branding again. I, I want to go and do packaging. I love packaging and I think there's an opportunity. Yeah. And someone I met at the, at the branding agency, I thought, oh, that's really impressive, they're great, whatever. And so I started Kirby Nolan and at the same time had my children, which is probably in hindsight, I mean, Ro did it when we started. In hindsight, a very, very difficult thing to do is starting, starting a business and having small children. And so I don't know how I survived that, but I did, but I barely survived it. And it was really stressful because it was, it was, it required so much work. Um, that and 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 it, it was just I was living in a, a state of complete exhaustion the whole time. I ended up getting really sick. I got I got really sick, and and when I got really sick, I thought, you know what, I can't do this. I have to I have to leave. This is just not right. So I decided to to sell my share and just be able to spend six months just with a tiny baby and a little toddler and regroup and then um and started with Roe because already Roe and I were running that business anyway but it was really more like I've just got to I just can't 
can't do this full time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so then I just subjected Ro to having to do that <laughs> with our business. <laughs> Sorry, Ro. <laughs> I think what's really important is that the culture of the business has to be right and and also the partnership has to be right. And 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 you can't you can't predict that, right? Like a partnership, a business partnership, especially of this length is like a marriage and some work and some don't. And so Margaret and I, we were really lucky that we'd had three years of working together and effectively running the last agency. So we knew that this partnership, what we didn't know, we assumed, <laughs> uh, we hoped that this partnership would 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 work and it did because we, we'd, we'd had that just those years of kind of working together and 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 knowing how each other worked and and as I said what what our values were what our work ethic what you know all that kind of stuff is really important to to nail down because um, running a business is really hard it's totally exciting and exhilarating and rewarding but it's also super stressful and super hard, especially when you have small children. But it's really important to get that partnership right. And and I firmly believe that a, a, a partnership is a really great way to run a business because otherwise you have to make 100% of the decisions on your own. And having someone to just bounce ideas off and um, pressure test things is really, really important. And, and it helps make better decisions in the end. I completely agree. Um, I, I just wanted to add something that w- what Ro was talking about. I, I think the other thing is as well is that um, in my previous business, it was as though we were not allowed to mention that I had small children. So we would have clients who would ask for meetings at 7 o'clock at night, you know, and I had a, and I had a baby, like literally baby that had to go home and feed. And so I was doing things like getting my mother-in-law to drive into town to go into this office block to sit in the car park so I could run downstairs and breastfeed the baby and then go back upstairs and do this stupid meeting. Wow. And it was so unrealistic because I wasn't allowed to say, actually, I've got a baby. You know, if, if they just said, I've got a baby and I can't do a meeting after 6 o'clock, the clients would have all been totally cool. Yeah. But it was almost as though there was this thing that, you know, oh, no, you can't be seen as not being professional. So it was such a breath of fresh air working with Rowan because we just told people we couldn't do those meetings. We've got children. We've got to go home. And the clients were like, of course. You know, it didn't make us look less professional. It, in a way, it made us more human and, and, and gave us a connection with our clients. It didn't make us look less professional. And playing at being professional was the thing that I really hated about my last business. It was like we all had to sort of pretend to be this sort of, you know, and and I, I think that's what's been so nice working with Ro is that I can just be me and, you know, if I can't do stuff, I'll just say I can't do it and if Ro can't do stuff, Ro never says she can't do stuff, by the way, yeah. but I do. And um, and it's fine. It, it works. It's really great. Yeah, that's really interesting about the whole, I had exactly the same setting at Red Setter, going to tap that sort of air of being professional. Obviously I'm professional now, but it's that sort of not wanting to mention children I think it was much more acceptable for men mm. to mention that they had to go home for the children because that seemed okay, whereas women seemed like they were just being sucked into family life and not being professional. I think yeah. COVID's kind of an upside of the lockdowns and stuff's helped with that. You, you're introduced into people's homes, into their families. You see the kids in the backgrounds and Zooms. And I do think we've moved on a lot from there. But, yeah, I completely yeah. agree it was, was where it was at. But um, Earn being a family-friendly business, and I know that's it, was, was fundamental to Ro and I from the very beginning. You know, like we we had to go home to our kids. We didn't want people working late. We didn't want people having to, you know, like all the agencies that I worked for before we started our own business. Like literally we were just working all hours. Ro was working all hours. You know, like that was one fundamental thing. We thought we just don't want the culture of the whole late-night business, yeah. you know, that seemed to be going on in design. And so we just said no, no late nights. We're not working late nights. We're all, we're all going home, and um, and hopefully we still do that most of the time. I think we do. Yeah. And um, it's a very healthy way to run a business because people have to have a life. Like if they're at work all the time, you don't get anything out of people, especially designers. Definitely. Like they just burn, you know. Yeah, completely agree. So where, tell me about um, denomination then. Where was your first? Where did you have your first studio? How did it all develop? 
Well, um, I was um, I was pregnant with my first child when I left um, our, our last business. So um, Margaret set up the agency whilst I was <laughs> in the midst of having a baby, and so she she of course is not a business manager, and so she spent a lot of money on a fabulous studio in Surrey Hills. It was absolutely gorgeous on some <laughs> incredibly expensive furniture. And, it was, and, 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 and she also had to learn you know, um, the accounting program. So anyway, I, I walked in when my son was four and a half months old and looked at the balance sheet and was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, <laughs> so with that shock... <laughs> I was like, I might take over the accounts from you. <laughs> um, but no, in actual fact, I'm really <laughs> pleased that Margaret did that because she set it up with um, with a long-term future, in, you know, with a vision of, of our long-term future. And so everything was done beautifully and properly. And, yes, we had to borrow a lot of money to really fund the business and to fund our salaries, even though they were meagre at the time. But it was really important that we actually set this up, not just sort of in a in a back room of a bed, someone's bedroom, but a proper studio with a printer and computers and art on the wall and, and great desks and, you know, everything just looked like a, a fabulous studio. And I think that's really, you know, it's something that we've taken forward with denomination is, your environment is incredibly important and it doesn't matter where you sit in the organisation, strategy, design, production, client service, you know, how you feel within the environment really affects your, your output and your creativity but, but also the way that you feel about your coming to work, your job, your team and, and the brands that you work on. So, so we've always had really beautiful studios and and always invested in art even when we were so poor <laughs> I mean really we had no money we we begged borrowed and stole and we borrowed artwork and we um invested in some pieces and and obviously we've we've grown our art collection since since then but it was it was you know it really important for us to have an environment that was just beautiful because it just makes you feel great. It does. We've always done the same thing at Red Setter. I think it makes a big difference for how people feel about their own roles and work together and creativity and all sorts of stuff, and that's really important stuff. I mean, I think the thing about setting up is really interesting because I know that it sounded extravagant, and it probably was, but at the same time I wanted to know that when I never doubted that it would not be successful so I thought, well, I can either just buy some shitty little tables from Ikea or we can actually get some ones that we're going to use long term and plus be prepared for success because somebody said once, you know, success isn't about luck or luck isn't about, you know, being lucky. It's, it's actually about being prepared for an opportunity that comes along. And I think if you're geared up for it, like you go, okay, we've only got two of us here but we've got room for eight people and we can just plug them in. That is a much better way to spend your money when you're starting out than going, I'm just going to, you know, set it all up here and then all of a sudden a huge job comes and you've got nowhere to put people and you're in a real panic and then you've got to find space and it makes it 10 times more stressful. So we have always, you know, the growth of our business always, well, really tried to plan for it in a very methodical way and and so it's kind of worked because you fill the space, you know, but it, it, there's nothing worse than having nowhere to put people and you've got really big projects coming in and you're thinking, oh, my God, you know, we're growing and and we now have to scramble and it's it just all full, you know. Yeah, it's a very good point. So, so how did you meet your first clients? Did some come with you anyway? Uh, it was really um, one of the reasons that we wanted to, to specialise in drinks is that we... We already had a lot of contacts and, and a, a, I mean, it was actually a tiny network compared to what we've got now, but a relatively good network. And so, you know, we we're just super lucky. We got um, a couple of small little wine clients. And then, uh, you know, once my contractual restrictions were over from my last business, Penfolds rang and said, we'd like you to redesign the brand. Literally. The day, the day, <laughs> the, the day, later. the day that they come out, <laughs> nine o'clock in the morning, and they're like, "Hi!" <laughs> you know, 
they ran off about two weeks or a week before Rose contract or contractual obligation thing. And she goes, I can't legally, I can't work for you yet. But in two weeks, we can. They went, no problem. Can you be in here for 10? We're like, yes, we can. So I, I, I think, you know, very few agencies get the chance to work on such an iconic brand and such a big brand, you know, this is just the two of us. We don't have any other staff at this point. So, you know, they they trusted us, they knew us, and, you know, we, we really have denomination success. A big part of it is is the part that Penfolds has played. So, yeah, that once once they came, they were owned by a company called Southcourt Wines at this, that stage, and obviously Penfolds was only one of the brands that they own, and, and um, it just sort of, grew from there and I think what's lovely about the drinks industry and is that most marketers when they get into drinks stay in drinks like I'd say 95% of them and so they would just go from one company to another drinks company and take us with them so the 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 business just expanded really slowly and organically with people either going to new companies or they would just, you know, a winemaker would show his wines at a at a you know wine show, and the next mate would say, "I love those those designs. Where did you go? Oh, you've got to go and see Denomination and Rowan Margaret, and here's Rose Number." And so it was just they were so lovely and so supportive, and and we really we just got all these fantastic clients just through referrals. And, and also support within the industry. You know, I as I said, I, I did a communications degree, so I knew the importance of making sure that um, media was part of our journey. So I wrote a lot of articles about wine branding. They were published in the, in the, in the trade mags in Australia, and that really helped reinforce our positioning as drinks experts. And so, um, yeah, it just it just sort of rolled on from there until obviously we got much bigger and then and then started expanding and then we had a bit of a different business model. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, setting up in London and then San Francisco. Did you do a similar thing when you did that? Just sort of start small and see where it goes. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we it was obviously a bit different because Margaret and I weren't there, so so that that. Presented sort of different challenges. There was a lot of travel, um, but um, but I think you know we've we've been able to by that stage we had a lot of runs on, on on the board. I think what was more difficult was that all of our work was Australian, and so we came across some bias against Australia. You know, not in terms of Australia, but but just well, you haven't done any work in Europe or Portugal or. Marathon, like you know, there was always this this thing that, that that we needed to have local local experience in order to show that we could do that. Um, but again, you know, we we got lucky with some clients who gave us a break and gave us an opportunity. Um, Symington Family Estates in in Portugal were one of them for the London office. They they gave us the redesign of Dow's, which is a really you know massive and and very prestigious fortified brand and that that then just grew from there um and the same thing happened in, in America you know we got we got quite a few clients who who gave us the opportunity to to prove that we could do things and, and Markham was one of them in, in the US um what was also really helpful was that Treasury Wine Estate, who, who owns Penfolds, it is obviously a very large wine business and they have offices in all three. So because we are their um, core design partner, we were able to, you know, work for their, their EMEA team out of London and their US team out of California. So that was a really, um, it was helpful for us. It was very helpful for them as well because then they had the one design agency looking after those brands like, say, 19 Crimes that has, you know, different needs for different markets, but but they needed to have one design agency that could really um, be the brand guardian and be able to, to make sure that whatever we were doing in, in the US, you know, was consistent with what was happening in the UK, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it does look fantastic wherever you go in the world. 
it's um yeah it's such a great brand for you guys to work on so can i move on to can i ask you about sort of how you inspire yourselves how you inspire yourselves as designers as company leaders what do you do you have a method that you actually go through or Look, I, I have to honestly say I'm 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 sort of person that I get inspired by the brief. I know that sounds like a sort of the, the answer that designers should say, but there is nothing worse than someone just saying, just do anything. <laughs> like I, I hate that. I really hate that. I get inspired by the problem and I love a problem and I love problem solving and um and I really do. And I think the other thing that I get inspired by a lot is just things in 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 outside the design world like I, I don't really have ever really been the sort of person that read design publications and I don't read design blogs and I'm, I'm not a really sort of active member of the design community all that kind of stuff I love getting my inspiration from people in other places like you know fabric makers or sculptors or artists or I, I love reading um I, I find a lot of inspiration in in books and poetry I know that sounds random, but I do. I love um, my husband, who's a decorative arts and art expert. He's just constantly showing me amazing things in the art world, which I, I just find so fabulous and inspiring, which is really great. It's really great. But really my my 100% inspiration, I would have to say, is is getting a, a difficult problem and then thinking, how am I going to solve this problem? And, and that's the thing that I love. And and of course, you know, it's it's a, a thing where it's a, a process where you think, how do I start? How am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to get an idea? But um, it's yeah, I start start with the problem, and that's that's the fun part, really. I love what you're saying there. I think that sort of problem solving, detective side of design of that kind of yeah, I think it's really interesting. That's what that's one of the things I love about it. It's really exciting oh. stuff. Even though I'm not a designer myself, just seeing that process and see how it starts with the problem and ends up with a creative solution, I love. I find really fascinating. Yeah. How about you, Ray? Uh, well, because I'm not on the creative side, I think um, I have a much easier way of being inspired, and that's and that's really by <laughs> by our team and 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 especially obviously Margaret, because you know it's. It, it amazes me that we've been working together for 25 years and you would think by now I kind of know her formula, right? I'd know what she would come up with in answer to that brief. And I am always so surprised and delighted with with what I see and I, I, I just find it amazing. And I think same too with, with the rest of the designers, we have a creative share that happens Whichever team has has worked on a, a project, they'll they'll often send around the sort of stage one presentation to the entire company, and it is just honestly, it's the best part of the day because you open it up and just think, what an incredible group of talented people we have! Like they are amazing, and and yeah. So from a from a client service side or a management side, I, I think that the the team are just incredible. And then just from a, a, a business side, you know, we, we work a, a lot in wine as well as um, spirits and, and beer. And I find the, the complexity of the industry really inspiring and really intriguing. So despite the fact that I've been working in the industry for a long time, more than 25 years, I still learn stuff every day. And um, and I think that's really inspiring. If you're working in I don't know toilet paper or something, or noodles, like there's there's only so much you could know, right? Like there's 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 a limit. And and whereas when you're working in such an incredible industry where you have a product that literally changes in the bottle every day for years and sometimes decades, it's a living, breathing thing. That's a pretty incredible industry to be working in. Massively. Well, that's it. I love, I mean, all the work that you guys are putting into the sustainability side and getting everything to scratch where it needs to be on that side. Of, I mean, there's just, there's so much to so learn much. on the yeah. isn't there? It's, it's really yeah. interesting. So can I, can I ask you a final question? Can I ask you both about tips for juniors starting out today, junior designers, junior accounts, um, account managers? What would, Margaret, what would your tips be for maybe yourself starting out today? 
Oh, look, yeah, and to be honest, I think it's really tough for, for junior people because when I was a junior, there was a lot of things that juniors could do without having to have lots of experience, you know, like because in those days there was always presentations to be mounted up and things to be made and people to help and you had to cut lots of stuff. Like, There's a very physical aspect to putting presentations together and you needed a lot of people to do that process, you know, like it was full on, like you had stacks of boards and you had to mount things up. So you always needed junior people because that's what you got them to help you to do. Nowadays, because everything is just done digitally and it's all we're all presenting digitally, and you know, like you know, especially after COVID, you know, we I don't I can't remember the last time we did printouts. Like, we, we used to do these beautiful, glossy printouts and take them to meetings and stuff, and I honestly can't remember the last time we did that. And so, it, the level of expertise that you kind of have to have, you know, working in a say a company like ours is, is, is pretty intense, like it's you know, so. For a junior, you know, like it's 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 really um, it's difficult because you're not necessarily thrown in the deep end, but it's hard to sort of go to become really helpful to the team until you've really sort of earned your stripes. So, really, for for us, putting a junior on is is an exercise in their education as opposed to really us needing a junior. I know that sounds terrible. We don't really need junior designers. And and that is what is so awful about it. Yeah, but we do invest in the industry by having junior designers because it's part of being part of the community. Yeah, and when I say less experienced designers, like having people straight out of college, you know, like when I call it real junior, having someone straight out of college, whereas in the, you know, the time's gone past, we can say that there's a number of things that's instantly, and look, we could definitely still have that and do, and have done that in the past as well, but the time investment for us is, is very, very big with very junior staff. And I'm not saying we don't have junior staff, but it is a big time investment to get them up to the level that we need. So it's difficult, you know, and um, I would just say, you know, persevere to to people who are junior in the business, in the industry, persevere and aim for working for a great studio because that is the thing that I think is, you know, is, is the thing. Remember that ideas are going to be the thing that is, is people are going to want from you, especially now AI is coming in. You know, like don't think that just because you're fabulous in Photoshop that's going to get you a great job. It's not. Just just. Focus on your focus on ideas, yeah. And I think too, if you um, are interested in an agency like ours, given that we're a drink specialist, just make sure you've got some drinks work in your portfolio. Make up some briefs. Talk to a local bar. Like go into the shops. Like work out where an opportunity might be. Prepare your designs. Prepare your thinking, and and then target agencies like that because then you 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 know you can show us that you you're really thinking about the industry that we're in and that you've got ideas that um that you know we might be looking for. So I think being proactive about that, but also really targeted about how you're actually approaching a, an agency is a is a smart way to go. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's. I get very dispirited when I get the new Sam Madden. <laughs> like you can't be bothered to find out what my name is. Then. Yes, definitely. You know, like I mean, you have to look like you're really making an effort. Like make an effort. Find out who the person is. Find out what they're working on. Write something that is original in your email. Don't just send out mass market emails. You know what I mean? Like it just it, it, it's got to be sort of crafted so that whoever is reading it and we get hundreds of them, you know, job applications the whole time, it, you don't just, just go, you know, dear sir, I mean, you know, I am a student from something where I'm, I'm, I'm not a sir, you know, so. And I, I think there's a lot of information on, on LinkedIn that you can source as a junior designer so you can really see, um, you know, what articles that creative director has written, you know, what their sort of liking post design, like there's, ton of information so you know apart from sort of design awards and 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 doing things like that like really getting LinkedIn is just chock-a-block full of of hints and tips really um that that you can incorporate into your approach 
for a design role. And I, and I think as well, one other tip that I would give is make it easy for people to see your portfolio. I get a lot of links to download things from all of these kind of different platforms where I have to download someone's folder and make it easy. You know, have a PDF that's of a size that someone can just go flick, 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 boom. Don't ask people to all of a sudden go onto sites and download stuff because you're not going to, you know, just make it easy. Yeah, that's very definitely good advice. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you both. It's been really enlightening. That's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm.